It's time to catalog minor catastrophes, tell our real life terrors, and manifest some mayhem. That's right. Let's crack open the anxiety encyclopedia. I'm Catherine McNally. I'm Laurie McGill. And I am up today. And what I'm going to talk about might strike you as a little odd. I'm going to talk about the bubonic plague. I saw an article about that the other day. So it's not going to strike you as odd because I also, I was mindlessly scrolling Instagram and this news account I followed had a post about how this week a woman in Oregon, actually, I think it's a man. I don't know why I said a woman, a person in Oregon caught bubonic plague from their cat. Really tragic. I mean, Oregon, eh, what can you do? But (laughs) the cat part really hurt me. It's awfully close to you. Yeah. I will tell you they're treating the cat. I don't know. If I hope the cat's you're going to tell me that this. It. Okay, good. I but hope you're they are tell treating me this the cat. Is like an indoor outdoor cat, and because I'm going to pretend that my cats are protected from everything because they never leave. I, I don't know the facts of that for sure, but as we go on, I do assume it was an indoor outdoor cat. I feel com- okay. comfortable, confident in that. Um, maybe like a barn cat or something. Okay, great. That helps ease. So the you pain. know. I had the plague on the brain this week, so I thought let's do a little dive into it. This is a pretty, believe it or not, this is a pretty large topic. So as usual, <laughs> we're going to go a inch deep and a mile wide. And as another reminder, I am not a physician. I'm not even a 14th century physician. And the stuff they were doing, bad. But I'm not even at that. I wouldn't even hold myself at that caliber. Uh, so we're going to talk about the history of the bubonic plague. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the plague in the 21st century, modern day, okay. in the 21st century. And we're going to see if we should be worried about this plague as we were about the recent pandemic that we have currently again. So I got quick temperature thought check. We already did this a little bit. Tell me your thoughts, feelings, and general knowledge of the bubonic plague. I know rats are involved. I know like, you know, bare minimum stuff. Um, I feel like we were chill with it for very long. And then that Oregon person just kind of ruined it all for us. So, but I think there's treatment too. I know very little, but this I know some things. This is all good. This is all about what I knew as well. I'll just tell it front too. We're going to keep this as, as non-gross as possible. Just for any listeners, don't You're not turn about off to your, like describe boils and don't stuff turn off your podcast. We're going to talk about the symptoms a little bit, but we're going to keep it brief and non-gross. So <laughs> don't don't run away. Uh, my notes say fun fact question mark because it is about a plague. But uh, the Roman physician Galen coined the term plague to describe any quickly spreading fatal disease. Ooh. So we cl- we can call all kinds of epidemics plagues. I love that. Um, plague is really just a descriptor, but today we've got our eye on that bubonic plague and specifically the time that spread around the world in the 1300s. That was actually the second instance of the plague. It first took people out in 6th century AD. We're not going to talk okay. about that one as much because if you think it's hard to find details about the 1300s, like people have no idea what was going on. What they weren't like five hundred Snapchatting that shit. Like <laughs> there weren't a lot of like peer-reviewed medical journals <laughs> telling us about the the time. So remember that an epidemic is a disease that spreads rapidly through an area and infects a lot of people in minimal time. That's what an epidemic is. And a pandemic is 
like an epidemic that goes global or, you know, broader than an epidemic. There were, so there were three separate bubonic plague pandemic waves centuries apart. And in between those pandemic waves, there were outbreaks as well. Okay. So the first we're going to talk about, that's actually the second plague pandemic, but this is the one that I think, I think when most people are like in London or thinking about the, the black death, that's this one. Uh, it, so this one is called the black death in Europe during the 1300s at the time, contemporary writers called it Latin words for pestilence, mortality, or epidemic. They called it a bunch of different things It became the black death later, uh, I am gonna. I also will say I am gonna cover some things about the way it impacted uh, the Middle East and Asia. I did my best and Africa to diversify a little bit. A lot of what's immediately findable is pretty European centric, so it is gonna trend that way a little bit. But so for purposes of accessibility and time, ours is gonna focus that way somewhat. But I'm trying here. I'm doing yeah. my best. Uh, it spread from 1347 to 1351. For a while, the prevailing theory was that it made its way along the Silk Road from Central Asia and then via Crimea into the westernmost parts of Europe and then into the Middle East and North Africa. There's dissension about whether it actually originated in China at all. We're going to talk about that in a little while. Like I said, it is a pandemic because it spread across multiple countries and populations. It was highly infectious. It was spread initially on ships by fleas that bite their hosts. And the reason rats got dragged through the mud is because they often started on the rats and then migrated to humans. And when they bite <laughs> their host, it introduces the bacteria that causes the disease into the host body. Once it came off the ships and onto the shore, it spread super fast. So they suspect that it was at that point spreading person to person because it spread faster than it would have been expected to spread mm -hmm if it was just through the rats. And in fact, research in 2018 suggests the transmission was actually via body lice and fleas and not rat fleas. So it was actually jumping from people to people instead of from rats to people. And I hate to do image repair for rats. Like I'm not team rodent. I mean, who really is? But maybe we, you know, I don't know, reconsider. I don't, I don't think love the rats... body body lice. That's those are two disgusting words that should not go together. Yeah, I mean, on its own body is a pretty I know, innocuous but... word, but yeah, when paired with lice and fleas, big bummer. Mm -mm. So, if you hate body lice, you probably aren't going to like some of the next information either, which is that obviously, lack of hygiene also contributed to the spread of the plague. This was pre germ theory. That checks out. Uh, by the early 14th century, so much filth had collected inside urban Europe that Italian and French cities were actually naming streets after human waste. In, no. med in medieval Paris, there are several street names inspired by mares, which means shit. <gasps> also, livestock just ran around Paris and London. One irate Londoner complained, complained that the runoff from the local slaughterhouse had made his garden stinking and putrid. While another said the blood from slain animals flooded nearby streets and lanes, making, quote, a foul corruption and abominable sight to all dwelling near. And then 
in a lot of medieval Europe, the like extent of sanitation legislation was an ordinance that required homeowners to shout, look out below three times before they dumped a full chamber pot directly into the street. That's not a good enough system. <laughs> you know, how would you fix that system? What legislation would you introduce? Because I agree, this is a broken system. Okay, how would I fix it? Um, can we invent like a, I don't remember if it was the Greeks or the Romans with that, you know, the aqueduct. Little, yeah. Let's make an aqueduct. Basically, I'm inventing plumbing. I'm inventing I love it. plumbing. I for one think <laughs> that's the right way to go. Let's get plumbing invented as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, I also found out that bathing was sometimes actively discouraged. There were certain sects of the Christian church that thought it was like tem it was temptation to bathe yourself and said don't bathe yourself and I heard I read I don't know if this is true this might be apocryphal but about one saint who died without ever having bathed herself I assume very young because she had never taken a bath but it was love oh go ahead I love that they're like you're gonna be too sexy if you can't if you can see your skin and it's not like covered in dirt the self-esteem is kind of inspiring though <laughs> oh my gosh but bathing in general was just not an encouraged practice in these times it was not just it was just sort of across the board people were not taking enough baths it was a lot of work right remember no indoor plumbing yeah Let's go back to the origin. It's unclear. For a long time, the prevailing theory was it originated in Central Asia. But in 2022, researchers discovered that there was a sudden surge of deaths in what is today Kyrgyzstan from the Black Death in the late 1330s, which like predated when it started spreading the big thrust of it. So when they combined that with genetic evidence, it implies the initial spread may not have been due to Mongol conquest in the 14th century, which was the previous speculation. There was also, they found there was East Asian bias in early sampling, and there was no specific or textual evidence of Black Death in the 14th century in China. It later has a greater effect in China in the later like round of pandemic, but not yet. So it's pretty heavily debated where exactly it originated. Uh, according to a geneticist named Achtman, the dating of the plague suggests it was not carried along the Silk Road, and its widespread appearance in that region probably postdates the European outbreak. Because also, the Silk Road had already been heavily disrupted before the spread of the Black Death. Uh, Western and Middle Eastern traders found it hard to trade on the road by 1325, and actually impossible by 1340. So it probably wasn't playing a big role in the spread, that road itself. And again, like I said, there's no textual evidence of records of Black Death symptoms from Chinese sources at the time before the Crimean outbreak, which was in 1346. So honestly, who the heck knows how or where it started and traveled? Probably it was a government conspiracy by some monarch who had figured out uh, it like came from a virology. Lab. Yeah, they had a secret lab in the dungeon. They weren't bathing, but they had a lab. That's why this theory has never been floated, but trust me, it's real. <laughs> it felt to me like a lot of speculation and some guesses that were more educated than others. I am impressed by the genome sequencing of like old 
I don't know how they're finding it in the bodies they're exhuming in the dirt. I don't know. But it is reported that the Black Death decimated the Golden Horde army of Khan Janeveg while he was attacking the trading port of Kaffa in Crimea. His, he was losing his troops, right? They were dying by the plague. So if you're actively engaged in battle and you're suddenly depleting your troops, what's your what's your strategy? What's your move? What do you do? Um, I think you just do Monty Python style where you just fight until you have no limbs left and it's just you. Good. Just the one just general. You. Yeah. Uh, I like that. That's a good possibility. What he actually did is he started using trebuchets to catapult plague-infested corpses into the town. So I was close. It does feel like a Monty Python thing, right? So he took, he was like, I no longer have much of an army. He starts catapulting dead infected bodies over to try and infect the enemies, which of course worked. It was highly transmissible. I can't decide if that's genius or like sociopathic or both. I think it's deeply desperate, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, good job. Thanks for your fight, buddy. Now I'm going to use your body just one more time. So he flings these infected corpses. It's like the first instance of biological warfare, basically. Yeah. He throws these corpses into Kaffa. And also, of course, rats don't observe battle lines. So probably they had also so run across just and infected. throwing a rat so like a football? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe. But also just the rats had probably already gone over and infected some people. I don't think it's... Whole, but I don't think the bodies full of plague flying through the air probably helped matters. I'm just like picturing it and it's so upsetting. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, yeah. It's it's not great on any count. Mm -mm. So from Kaffa, Genoese ships carried the pandemic westward to Mediterranean ports. And then from there, it moved to inland and affected a bunch of countries. So here's some. Uh, it hit Sicily in 1347, which in October of 1347, 12 ships from the Black Sea docked at the Sicilian port of Messina. And so there's people gathered on the docks to meet people on the ship. They're probably excited. And what they're met with is this horrifying scene where most of the sailors on the ships are already dead and those who are still alive are dying. They're covered in black boils that ooze blood and pus, right? Sicilian authorities are like, oh my gosh, get out of the harbor. This is a fleet of death ships. And they're right, but it's too late. Yeah. In 1348, it moves into North Africa, mainland Italy, Spain, and France. In 1348, 49, it hits Austria, Hungary, Switzerland, Germany, and the Low Countries, which I should have looked up. I have no idea what the Low Countries are. They're lower. Sounds like something out of a fantasy novel. Yeah. Where they like just the have like the middle. The hill. Yeah. They just have like, <laughs> we're in the mountain range and we don't go into the Low Country. Yeah. Uh, the plague was carried to Dorset in August 1348. It reached Bristol almost immediately and spread rapidly throughout the southwestern counties of England. London suffered the most between February and May of 1349, Yorkshire during that summer, and the Black Death reached the extreme north of England, Scotland, Scandinavia, and the Baltic countries in 1350. Probably not surprising to know that places, more remote places with less traveled trade routes didn't have as much infection. So now we're going to get into some common symptoms. 
like I said, we're going to keep it high level, but if you want to tap that 30 second button a couple times, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Also, you do what you got to do. Uh, it starts with very much kind of like the flu, fever, headaches, painful joints, nausea, vomiting, general malaise. I love general that. malaise is what I feel at about two o'clock every afternoon. Yeah. I think we need to all be using general malaise much more <laughs> frequently. I also like to, you know, on we, I like to feel on we and malaise. Yes. And then they would have the appearance of painful bubos, hence the name, the bubonic plague. Those are the boils. Basically, they appear in the worst spots, the groin, the, the neck and the armpits. I forgot about the groin. <laughs> Can't forget about the groin. And eventually they secreted pus and blood. Because as we said earlier, not a lot of medical journals were tweeting. There weren't a lot of remaining reports of the disease right now from the 14th century. But Boccaccio, and I'm definitely saying that wrong because it's two double C's and I said them two different ways and I don't think they should be said two different ways, and it is an Italian writer and he described it in this way. In men and women alike, it first betrayed itself by the emergence of certain tumors in the groin or armpits, some of which grew as large as a common apple. Others as an egg. From the two said parts of the body, this deadly govacciolo soon began to propagate and spread itself in all directions indifferently, after which the form of the malady began to change. Black spots or livid, making their appearance in many cases on the arm or thigh or elsewhere, now few and large, now minute and numerous. As the Govacciolo had been and still was an infallible token of approaching death, such also were these spots on whomsoever they showed themselves. So terrible. In So that's the bubonic plague. In addition to bubonic, the plague takes two other forms. One is the pneumonic form, which attacks the lungs before it attacks the rest of the body. This oh. causes respiratory problems. It has a mortality rate of 90 to 95%. And this is the most virulent version. So it attacks it's the most contagious and it attacks kind of the most quickly and this is probably part of the way that spread was so fast is there was some degree of because pneumonic plague in, in there that people were sharing and then the septicemic sorry medical professionals plague is but it's it's rooted in the idea of sepsis it's a form of deadly blood poisoning and this is contracted primarily through the bite of an infected insect and it's almost always fa fatal the mortality rate for this form of the plague in medieval times was 99 to 100%. This is also the rarest of the three varieties. Okay. At least there's that. So back to our old buddy bubonic. Victims usually died between two and seven days after being infected, and the death rate in medieval times was 60 to 90%. Although the rate of infection and mortality did vary from place to place. Some towns were hit harder. Uh, towns themselves were hit harder than the countryside because everyone was just packed in there dumping human waste on each other's head as near as I can tell. I mean, that was the only kind of shower that they were getting. Yeah. Although, as is often the case, it had a greater impact on people who were already of lower status. It Death is also the great equalizer. So even nobility who sort of theoretically should have been able to flee died uh, Eleanor queen of Peter the fourth of Aragon King Alfonso the 11th of Castile died Joan daughter of the English King Edward the third died at Bordeaux on the way to her wedding Canterbury lost two archbishops one after the other 
and the papal court was reduced by one fourth. So whole families and whole communities were sometimes annihilated. In 1348, the disease spread so rapidly that depending on your uh, estimates vary, because again, this was a really long time ago, but nearly a third of the European population may have perished before any physicians or government authorities had time to reflect upon its origins. It was just like all of a sudden, 33% of the population is dead. In crowded cities, it was not unusual for as much as 50% of the population to die. Half of Paris's 100,000 people population died. In Italy, the population of Florence was reduced from between 110 to 120,000 inhabitants in 1338 to 50,000 in 1351. So that's more than half of the Florence population. Can you imagine? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I can't imagine. It's just so half you're the like... people. But now this flat is all mine, so that's an upside silver lining. But I don't understand germs, and so I don't know if that flat is a poison flat. <laughs> but I got more space now to do all my activities. Oh my gosh, all your activities? <laughs> At least, yeah, for the, you know, 30 minutes a day you're not working in a factory <laughs> or in the field. I guess this is pre-factory. In a field, you, you can get to come home. your space. Kick out your feet, hang out with your pet rat who's giving you the plague. <laughs> this is horrible. At least 60% of the population of Hamburg and Bremen perished, and a similar percentage of Londoners as well, leaving a death toll of approximately 62,000 between 1346 and 1353, which, given the populations at the time, is a very high number. Lawrence's tax records suggest that 80% of the city's population died within four months in 1348. Oh, my God. Before 1350, there were around 170,000 settlements in Germany, and this was reduced by nearly 40,000 by 1450. The disease bypassed some areas, those isolated reasons that we talked about. Uh, plague did not appear in Flanders until the turn of the 15th century, and the impact was less severe on the populations of Finland, Northern Germany, and areas of Poland. Monks, nuns, and priests were the hardest hit because they were caring for the ill. Um, Which, yeah. I Just can you imagine being like in a monastery or a nunnery and knowing you were going to go out and do that and watching the people, around, the numbers around you just deplete and mm -hmm. every day you're going out and coming home and wondering Is it me? if it's your time. Mm -hmm. awful this may shock you but the medical authorities in the 14th century didn't have a lot of helpful information really they did some of those old classics like bloodletting oh jesus and boil lancing oh practices that were dangerous and unsanitary <sighs> I just, it's one of those things too, where it's like, if you're dying, probably you need to keep your blood. That seems like it should stay inside. I can understand the initial idea of like, maybe we got to get the infected blood out, but how do you target only the infected blood? I don't think they knew. And then I'm sure that Lansing boils, it was not only unsanitary for the victim, the patient, but the doctors, right? Like, what? <laughs> they also practice superstitious practices like burning aromatic herbs and bathing in rose water or vinegar. 
Hey, you know what? At least it's bathing. I'm sorry. You're covered in painful boils. Climb into this bath of vinegar. Doesn't I mean, that feel nice? It wouldn't be great. How did we figure out anything? Like, how did someone figure out to, like, just wash your hands? Like, someone was like, a lot of babies are dying in this hospital, but when I wash my hands, less babies die. Here are some other medieval cures and preventative measures for the plague that they took. Okay. One, they believed that plague was plague. You'll see why I said plague in a second. Plague is a scourge from God for evil deeds. So this is when the practice of flagellation came about as a result of the plague, where you would scourge yourself with a whip, like a flagellant, self-flagellating. That term comes from this oh. idea of physically flagellating yourself. And so if you scourge yourself, then God has no reason for scourging you with the plague. So that was one preventative measure. I love that. I love how it always comes back to you're a bad person. You're a sinner. You did this. Uh, Cover yourself in tiny cuts so that you won't get the plague. (laughs) What? Another one was to apply. Well, that's the flagellating. That's the self-flagellating. It's bad, though. Um, If you're not into that, you can apply a mixture of tree resin, roots of white lilies, and human excrements. Oh, it was like going well. And then it... I mean, it was going well in so much as it wasn't actively harmful. I don't think tree right. resin and lily root was actually going to do a whole butt. But I was like, you know what? Out of all these options, that doesn't sound too bad. And then we got to the excrement. So I have another one like that for okay. you. Um, oh, good. Bathing should not be avoided. We okay. like this. And should be done with vinegar and rose water. Uh-huh. This is all still good, right? Alternatively, in your own urine. But I would say this is a step up because at least you're bathing in your own urine. And it's sterile. The other one, they got them all of these options. How is that somehow the best one? It's probably the warmest bath most of these people ever took. How much is it? I feel like it would take a lot of urine to make a bath, but I'm yeah, not going to think about that. If you're dying... I don't think maybe this, is pre- maybe this is preventative. Is this how like we started peeing on each other for jellyfish stings? I think those are probably unrelated. I don't actually see the correlation there, but thank you for trying to draw that connection. Another recommendation was to drink the pus of the lanced boils. Ew. Uh, but here's a pretty good one to quarantine people for 40 days. This was first done in Venice. Okay. They started quarantining people in 1348 in Venice. Quarantine, in fact, the word comes from the Latin for 40. That's where the word comes from. There was also a version that was 30 days. I don't, it was like that started with the treble kind of uh, language. So that's pretty good. Or you could place a live hen close to the swellings to draw out the pestilence, then drink a glass of your own urine twice a day. You could grind up and... You could grind up an emerald and drink it in wine. They're into some weird shit. Ingest snakeskin, bone from the heart of a stag, Armenian clay, precious metals, alloy myrrh, and saffron. Or roast the shells of newly laid eggs and grind them to a powder. Add marigold flowers and treacle and drink it in warm beer every morning and night. And I will say a lot of those sound crazy. And then I will say some people today drink colloidal silver until they turn blue and die. So let's not get too snobby about how advanced we are. Do you know a lot of people who are drinking that? 
I don't know a lot of people who were roasting the shells of newly laid eggs, grinding them to a powder and adding these things. <sighs> I'm just saying, let, you know, take a good hard look at our own crystal and essential oil practices. I'm just glad there's less urine involved now. Less, but not none. <laughs> Some of those really crunchy, like drink the breast, put the breast milk in everyone's smoothie and mm. maybe a little bit of your own urine. It's out there. It's fringy, but it's out there. The advice, if the plague came to your town, was basically get as far away as you can, as fast as you can, and take your time coming back. So, of course, that means in a panic, healthy people did all they could to avoid the sick. Doctors refused to see patients. Priests refused to administer last rites, and shopkeepers closed their stores. A lot of people fled for the countryside, but they couldn't escape it there because it affected cows, sheep, goats, pigs, and chickens, as well as people. In fact, so many sheep died. There was a European wool shortage. Oh my gosh. Which was the least of their worries, but is an interesting thing that happened. The Black Death, you've probably already noticed this, but it coincided with an era of increasing global travel, exploration, colonization, and increased trade, which meant the disease had a field day, right? It could easily travel via ship and then across land. It, the estimate is that in Europe alone, it wiped out an estimated one to two thirds of the population in those four years. And then also, of course, it spread other places as well. By autumn of 1347, it had reached Alexandria in Egypt. It was transmitted by sea from Constantinople via a single merchant ship carrying enslaved people. One ship, just like, sorry, Egypt. By late summer, it had reached Cairo. Uh, which was the cultural center of the Islamic world and the largest city in the Mediterranean basin. The Nile was choked with corpses, despite Cairo <gasps> having a medieval hospital. Plague recurred there more than 50 times over the following 150 years. It also traveled eastward in 1347 until by October, plague had broken out in Aleppo, so it traveled across the Middle East as well. Within two years, it had spread across the Islamic world. Um, of course, as this was happening, many, if not all of the communities were encountering the disease for the first time. They had no idea how to respond. Not that anyone had a super great response. But I will say there were actually some public health measures that were instituted for the first time that then were used for centuries afterwards. So it started with Italian authorities when the plague arrived on trading ships. And for the first time, the authorities became involved in public health. They started... Um, quarantine. This also began medical inspections. So a plague doctor would come to inspect, inspect suspected cases of plague and to isolate infected people and families in their homes. And they would wear that plague doctor costume. I was going to say, this is where that comes in, right? Yes. So it consisted of an ankle length overcoat, a bird-like beak mask, and the mask was filled with sweet or strong smelling substances. Like oh. They also wore gloves and boots. The mask had glass openings for the eyes, obviously, so they could see. And straps held the beak in front of the nose. Uh, and it had two small nose holes. It was a type of respirator, essentially. In the beak, they might put dried flowers like roses or carnations. They might put herbs like mint, spices, camphor, or even a vinegar sponge. And so the purpose was to remove bad smells because at the time, bad smells were thought to be the principal cause of the disease. Okay, okay, but think about it. 
there is some, there is an acknowledgement there that clearly the particles are being carried somehow mm. through the air. But it smells so bad all the time. Like no one's bathing. So how do like, yeah, that's true. Does that indicate how bad, like how much worse it was? Yeah, like, I think it does. I think that does. Like if it was already that bad, how much worse was it at this time? Uh, so they believed the herbs would counter the evil smells of the plague and keep them healthy. The costume also had a wide-brimmed leather hat, basically just for fashion. It was to indicate their profession. It was to show I'm a doctor. Like the bird beak wasn't enough, I guess. <laughs> They're like, there's something I'm imagining. We cut to a montage of the guy, the doctor guy, and a fashion guy who's helping him. He's like, there's something missing in this look. And then he puts on the hat and it's complete. I did it. I've done it. A masterpiece. They used, I think, you know, bedside manner was not great. They used wooden <laughs> canes to point out areas that needed attention and examine patients without touching them. The canes were also used to keep people away and to remove clothing from victims without having to touch them. I would love to see how they do that with a cane. Yeah. Like, probably not super precise. No. <laughs> That does really, though, I feel like I could really, can we bring that back? I don't, I want less human interaction. Just cane length away from me at all times. Get away. From your doctor? Only no, doctors from are allowed to have the canes. I think we should make it mainstream now. Uh, you can try. Okay. I just generally want people to be six feet away from me at Very all times for the rest kind of my of life. Ebenezer Scrooge of you, but... We've already said that I have similarities to him in multiple ways. So. <laughs> well, just wait until you're visited by four ghosts. In addition to medical inspections, the plague also brought about the beginning of isolating people who were sick in plague hospitals. They were built throughout Europe and remained as fever hospitals for infectious patients up until the 1900s. And then, like I said, restricting ships to port. In 1347, the Venetian authorities isolated ships in port for 30 days to make sure they were not infected, and then eventually extended it to 40. And that's where we got the word quarantine and the control of the movement of people and goods. So this engagement of public authorities in public health. Some of the impacts of the plague, so the short-term effects were wars briefly paused and trade heavily slumped. Also, a lot more laborers died. So then the landowners didn't have enough people to work their land. So the land kind of ran like it was intended. It wasn't worked. And then wages increased for artisans and peasants. So the supply and demand for laborers kind of loosened up some of the social stratification that had been so rigid before. You can also see the effect in art. There's this preoccupation in poetry, sculptures, and painting on death and the afterlife. Not that to some mm -hmm. degree people weren't always thinking of those things, but yeah, when you watch 30 to 60% of, right. of the people around you die, you're going to think about it a lot. Unfortunately, as is the case with so many global events, uh, there was a heavy increase in anti-Semitism. The Jewish people were blamed for spreading the Black Death, which led to a lot of violence and oh my God. burning them. And we pogroms. don't change at all. 
Totally. There is throughout kind of the history, there is a pattern of that, of blaming them for bad things that happen. That's so stupid. In England alone, the Black Death certainly caused the depopulation or total disappearance of about a thousand villagers. The rough estimate is that 25 million people in Europe died from plague during the Black Death and as many as 50 million worldwide, which is nuts when you think about how much smaller the world population was in the 14th century before the plague, certainly after the plague. Like I said, 30 to 60% of the European population and around 30% of the population of the Middle East. Around 40% of Egypt's population died. Large company, large countries like China and India seem not have actually to been impacted by the 14th century pandemic. They were much more, we'll talk about the next wave that comes, the next big wave where they were heavily impacted. Italian chronicler Agnolo di Tura recorded his experience from Siena, where the plague arrived in May of 1348. He said, Father abandoned child, wife, husband, one brother, another, for this illness seemed to strike through the breath and sight, and so they died, and none could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of the household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could without priests, without divine offices. Great priests were dug and piled deep with the multitude of dead, and they died by the hundreds both day and night, and as soon as those ditches were filled, more were dug, and I buried my five children with my own hands. And there were also those who were so sparsely covered with earth that the dogs dragged them forth and devoured many bodies throughout the city. There was no one who wept for any death, for all awaited death. And so many died that all believed it was the end of the world. I mean, of course. Yeah. Yeah. A completely incomprehensible. And even there are positive, positives and negatives to the news cycle, obviously, but kind of no forewarning that this is happening until the death ships show up at your port. Right. And you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Or people flee to your city trying to escape it and probably bring it with them, right? I will say one sentence I read that really made me laugh was talking about the theory of transmission and the cause. And it just said, quote, researchers are hampered by a lack of reliable statistics from this period, which cracked me up because, yeah, it was 700 years ago. Like, <laughs> So after the worst of it, those four years, people would still catch it in pockets and there would be smaller outbreaks and recurrences. Uh, and then in the 1500s, there was a big wave again that was a more virulent strain spread more quickly. It killed more people. France especially suffered with two and a half million people dying between 1600 and 1670, which is a, a bonkers length of time also to just know it was like around for your whole life, 70 years. That's crazy. At this time, Italy, Holland, and England also had outbreaks. And the last major one was in London just before the great fire of London. Then outbreaks declined in Western Europe from the mid-1600s. The last great epidemic in France was in 1720 and Russia in the mid-1770s. I hate to inform you that it's unclear why it declined. Okay. I always want to be able to point to a reason, but we can't. So it's just okay. like, one row could happen again, right? The last big pandemic was at the end of the 1800s and it spread across Asia. Uh, which doesn't mean outbreaks had continued throughout the 1800s. And then there was this pandemic wave that started in southern China in 1865. Between 1894 and 1929, there were over 24,000 cases in Hong Kong. 
From there, it entered the ports of India, where at least 12 million people died over 20 years. Oh, my God. However, by this time period, there were some actual developments in bacteriology and viral control. So for the first time, researchers could actually look at the disease, they could investigate it, they could observe it, and they could make some reasonable actual discoveries. A term of European scientists was sent to uh, colonial Hong Kong in the 1890s to study the epidemic. And a French-Swiss bacteriologist, Alexandre Yersin, isolated the bacterium that caused the disease in 1897. So it was named Yersinia pestis after him. Uh, he also proved it was present in rats. He believed rats were the source of transmission. And scientists, this blows my mind, scientists have since confirmed that why pestis was responsible for the plague of Justinian, which was the sixth century plague from 541 to 549. I do have to say, I would hate to be a scientist who made a really big discovery and then had the illness named after me, the bacteria, not like the mm -hmm. cure or that. Mm -hmm. My uh, my grandpa was a doctor and he and his partner discovered, uh, I believe it was an, a disease. They discovered like the source of it. They figured it out. And he essentially let her name it after herself and kept his name off the he was not fighting for naming rights of the disease he was like go for it that makes sense to me <laughs> so there's not a disease with my last name out there floating around but there could be there could have been so then in 1898, Paul Louis Simond established the mechanism for transmission was via fleas. He figured out that fleas transferred bacteria from infected hosts to the non-infected hosts through their bites, and that they were being transported around the world by the rats, these black rats. They were known as house rats or ship rats, and they liked to live in close proximity to humans. And then when the rats died, the fleas moved on to the human hosts. There were apparently Ew. some rats that were immune, which meant it carried farther, and then they would move on to a host and infect another host. Uh, the fleas also infested clothing and could be carried to other locations in that manner. From Hong Kong, the epidemic spread to the major Indian ports, like we talked about. When it broke out in, in Bombay, now Mumbai, in 1893... A Goan doctor called Acacio Viegas was the first to identify the disease as bubonic plague. And he started this huge campaign to clean up the slums and kill rats. And then the colonial authorities brought in scientific experts, including Valdemar Hofkin, who had worked at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And he was at the time developing a cholera vaccine. He established a laboratory in Bombay in 1893 and worked on a plague vaccine. The immunology of the bubonic plague was a challenge, but in October of 1896, he actually produced a vaccine for human testing. He tested it on himself first, then on prison volunteers. I don't mm -hmm. love the prison volunteers, but I respect that the doctor tested it on himself first. I guess, yeah. I'm also questioning how much volunteering happened well, and how much uh, that's what I meant. happened. That's what I meant. I don't love that. But I also suspect he didn't pick those people. He was probably like, yeah. I didn't die. Who's next? And some authority was like, try it on those prisoners. There were some side effects from the vaccine. And the protection was incomplete. But the risk of contracting the bubonic plague was reduced by 50%. Wow. And by 1900, over 4 million people had been inoculated. 
And then you're going to tell me about how other people were like, the vaccine has microchips in it that the government is going to use to track us and know everything, even though we carry around tiny computers that track us all the and, time. And other people were like, what's a microchip? And the first person was like, <laughs> I don't know, but I don't want one. Uh, in India, the plague obviously had a profound impact. Uh, how could it not? Millions of people were dying. People left Bombay, so the population dropped. And so between the people who left and the people who were sick, the textile industry basically ground to a halt. Authorities also became really aggressive in trying to address it. So they searched houses for victims. They made people leave infected areas. They set up travelers in detention camps. The restrictions were imposed by what was called the Special Plague Committee and enforced by the Colonial Army. And these tactics obviously caused widespread protest. There was alarm uh, until eventually the British chairman of the Special Plague Committee was murdered as a result of the pub by like the public outrage. Yeah. However, even with the reaction, some of these measures, like in Italy, laid the groundwork for future public health. And the Institute of the Guy Who Created the Vaccine, Hofkeen, still does medical research in Mumbai. So that is the, the re vaccine dude is probably the lasting positive impact of some of that response. Like I said, this thing that's really crazy is that using techniques like genome mapping, scientists have identified the exact strains of bubonic plague that they encounter and their origins so they can track the spread of epidemics. And genetic evidence of the Yersinia pestis bacterium in several plague burial grounds was found from 1348 to 1590. So they have confirmed that what we refer to as the Black Death was, in the vast majority of cases, bubonic plague. It's possible that other deaths from smallpox and leprosy were kind of all lumped in there because people were dying of this, like, skin disease, but most of yeah. it was the Black Death. Modern genetic analyses indicate that the strain of Y. pestis introduced during the Black Death is ancestral to all extant circulating strains known to cause diseases in humans. So that strain is the predecessor of all of the bubonic plague strains we still have. So the origin of the modern plague epidemics lie in the medieval period. So that's a very quick history of the bubonic plague. And... Let's talk about it in the U.S. We got to jump way into the future for that, right? Mm -hmm. So by the 1930s, plague epidemics were essentially done. There were still instances of the disease in smaller outbreaks, especially in Central Asia. Uh, it was introduced, introduced to the U.S. in 1900 by a rat-infested steamship. Again. Again with the rats. And the last urban plague epidemic in the U.S. occurred in Los Angeles from 1924 through 1925. Doesn't hmm. feel quite long enough ago to me. Yeah. Plague then spread from urban rats to rural rodent species. This is the true story of the country mouse and the city mouse, which is that the city mouse goes to the country and gives all the country mice <laughs> plague. And from there, it became entrenched in many areas of the Western United States. So according to the CDC, modern-day plague typically occurs in the U.S. in two areas, northern New Mexico, Arizona, and southern Colorado, California, southern Oregon, and far western Nevada. That's so interesting. Okay. Yeah. In the U.S., people can contract the plague like when they're disposing of squirrels or mice that died from the plague or traveled to an area where the plague was. Human-to-human -human transmission is super rare. That's one thing to know. Really, people are not giving the plague to each other. 
at this point. So this is why you keep telling me not to interact with squirrels. It's it's part of it. Yep. <laughs> Human plague occurs in areas where the bacteria are present in wild rodent populations. The risks are highest in rural and semi-rural areas, including homes that food feed and shelter squirrels, chipmunks, wood rats, or other places you might encounter rodents. According to the CDC, in recent decades, we're averaging seven human plague cases each year. The range okay. is one to 17 cases a year with an average of seven. It has occurred in all ages, infants up to 96, but 50% of cases occur in people aged 12 to 45. And while it occurs in both men and women, it's slightly more common among men, probably because of increased outdoor activities. So they're at a higher risk. So staying inside is paying off for me. You got it. From 1970 to 2020, there were a total of 496 cases reported in the U.S. I looked at a chart breaking it down. Most states had zero. A handful had under 20. California had 45. Arizona and Colorado were mid-60s. You might notice that that doesn't add up to 496. And you know why? It's because New Mexico, has, in the last 50 years, has had 253 of the 496 U.S. cases. Way to go, guys. You did it. I know that's across 50 years, but why is it so much higher than anywhere else in the U.S.? Well, I'm fascinated why that, like, that area, because it's all kind of like the Southwest. I know. I don't know if the, like, temperate climate. That makes it thrive or something. Yeah. And the combination in New Mexico, there are a lot of more rural areas and then more metro areas. So I don't know if that's, I don't hmm. know. And I don't like it. Yeah. There are some countries where it's now endemic. So kind of like the flu, uh, the three most endemic countries are Democratic Republic of Congo, Madagascar, and Peru. There is no current plague vaccine available. There are some in development, but they're not expected to be commercially available anytime soon and would probably be more for people working in those environments where they're coming into mm -hmm. contact with that kind of wildlife. So U.S., there's like seven cases average a year. Worldwide, there are 200 to 700 reported cases a year, although there are also many likely unreported cases. Uh, many of the reported cases are in the endemic hotspot, which is Madagascar. It makes up three quarters of the world's cases. Madagascar is the New Mexico of the world when it comes to plague. Okay. So really, how anxious should we be about the plague? Uh, with modern antibiotics, the mortality rate has gone from 60% and up to 11%. Okay, love that. Although Madagascar did have a couple drug-resistant forms of the bacteria in 1995 and again in 2017. In 2017, they had the worst outbreak in modern history. 170 people died and thousands were sick. So wow. that's a little nerve-wracking, but antibiotics, for the most part, bring it down to about 10%, plus the chance of catching it is extremely low, as yeah. evidenced by the number of reported cases. Some ways you can avoid it is to wear insect repellent because you want to avoid fleas. You know, if you're out, long pants, long sleeves, boots, avoid sick or dead animals, keep your own pets healthy. Cats in particular are susceptible to plague and can pass it to humans. So you shouldn't encourage your cats to hunt rodents. Keep them inside. Uh, people that may have been exposed to the plague by being within six feet of a person or animal who has it can also take preventative antibiotics. 
And like I said, the case in Oregon that spurred my anxiety was actually the first one in Oregon in almost 10 years. They treated the person who caught it and tracked down her contacts and treated them. So it's unlikely to spread and they're treating the cat as well. So probably don't need to be that anxious. It's truly awful to think about what it must have been like to live in one of those countries during that time period. But yeah, that is the bubonic plague. What is making you anxious this week? Well, um, let's see. Well, I was worried jury duty is over. I was worried about deliberations. Um, and now I can tell you why, because the case was about child molestation and, but like, even just based on the, like when the lawyers were questioning us, like their questions were very much like, I mean, they asked about like false accusations. Right. And so you got a real clear read of the room and like, a couple men were like, oh, yeah, my buddy's been falsely accused twice now of sexual assault. And another guy's like, oh, yeah, my friend was accused of sexual harassment and he's been exonerated. I'm like, A, I don't think you can get exonerated for that. B, I think you guys have really bad friends. <laughs> like, the, especially the guy with two. This happened twice. This isn't a coincidence, my guy. So I was just, like, very worried about the group of people Um, who were selected for the jury because it was very white and it was very male but the they like pick three we had three alternates they had I don't know why but they picked them at random which I didn't know until it happened and I was like oh my god I've sat through this whole thing and I thought I was gonna make it through Um, but the one guy that I was really worried about because he kept shaking his head when we were we were asked about like is testimony evidence and I'm over here like yes it's evidence and he's like shaking his head no shaking his head no I'm like don't put this guy in the jury guess what but he was an alternate so he was gone and I was just very worried I was like I'm gonna have to explain to these men how like this 12 year old girl has no reason to make up this very complicated and complex story for attention which is what the defense has said for to get out of trouble like the defense has said like There's no reason. And instead, I didn't have to say that. Instead, a lovely little white man who drives a semi-truck for UPS said it. And I was like, do I have faith in humanity just for this little moment? Maybe. And it was very like, it was, I was very impressed by the points that other jurors had, the things that they noticed. Like, by the end of it, I was like, I think I see how this can work well and we convicted him we said he was guilty so i was very worried and then of course um the kansas city shooting yeah caroline was there yeah and she had to run home she was fine but it's just like what the fuck so that was scary yeah i just like saw it on social media and i I immediately called caroline because i knew she was there yeah that's terrifying so those are mine. What um is yours? Well, mine are on the completely other side of the seriousness spectrum. They're really just like Good. two stupid things I did this week. So <laughs> the first one is I was leaving a friend's house in the dark and my hands were full and I tripped on a crack in the sidewalk and I just fell so hard, completely down. And because my, you're really not supposed to catch yourself with your hands anyway, but because they were full, my hands did nothing. So I just landed on my knees. Fortunately, I don't like 
hit my head on the ground. I just landed on my knees super hard. I was holding a a plant in a mug and that didn't break and my jeans didn't rip, which is for incredible. the last 15 years, at least every time I fall, the first thing I do is check to make sure my jeans didn't rip. Then I assess the bodily damage. I they actually that. may have ripped in one knee, but they are ripped jeans already. So, so it's it, fine. Uh, so I get home and I am thinking that my knees are going to be like all scraped up, which they are. But when I look at my knees, one of them has a, a goose egg, like huge, like bigger than a golf ball. Like it looks like a second kneecap under my kneecap. It's so swollen and bruised and horrible looking. So that was the oh, first no. one. And the second one is yesterday I fed the dogs and the puppy eats super fast every time she eats. She runs in the living room. We're going to try and steal Addie's food, but the joke's on her mm-hmm. and I already put Addie's bowl away. And I go out to let them outside and she's like sitting on the rug kind of weird. She's sitting awkwardly. And then she starts making this weird noise. And I'm thinking maybe she's going to throw up, but it's not quite that noise. It's like a weird tight noise. And I go over and her jaw is like clamped shut. Like I try to get a finger in there and her jaw is clamped shut. And so I'm starting to freak out. And I don't know why my instinct is to ask the dog if she's okay. Like, even if she is okay, she's going to tell me, but I'm like, uh-huh. I'm starting to freak out that she's choking. And I don't remember how to do dog Heimlich, but I kind of remember how to do the baby Heimlich. Not really. Don't ask me to do baby Heimlich. You actually like, turn I think that's up- how you do the dog one. You actually turn them upside down. Yeah. I looked, it was pretty close. So I like pick okay. her up and kind of like point her at the ground and pound her back hard. And she throws up all over. Was she actually choking or did I just make throwing up incredibly annoying for her? I don't know, but I was like, you're a hero. I had like a real adrenaline rush after that. Oh my God. I think she was probably just trying to throw up in peace and I made it extremely frustrating. (laughs) No, it's happening now. (laughs) I was like chasing her out, picking her up, hitting her on the back. Very stressful. Oh, yeah. What is bringing you joy? Let's see. Um, Well, it is my what they call midwinter break. So we have a five day weekend, which I'm pretty excited about. I'm trying very hard not to think about school. Um. And we already got brunch. I'm trying to do some other fun things to, you know, enjoy myself. But also, I just watched Taylor Tomlinson's new special, and it is Chef's Kiss Perfect. So definitely watch that. And then I also watched um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I think it's on Amazon. Yes, that's on my list. I've heard it's really good. It's, I mean, I'm obsessed with those two actors. Yeah. Um, So that is also like part of it but yeah it's very good and fun but also thrillery and yeah yeah what about you well I have two things the small thing for me is that so I'm going to do new girl bar trivia this week I'm pretty excited about that and to prepare for it one of my friends and I have been obviously watching new girl but also texting each other fun trivia randomly to try and study but it's just like a great time to just get a a new girl question in my text messages um and then the other thing is I have one more stranger undanger story for you today (gasps) that came in okay and this is kind of a fun one so this is from uh, from my friend Carmen and oh, I don't have my glasses on because of these headphones and it's so tiny. Okay. <laughs> she said, hiking down the mist trail in Yosemite with my husband and two toddlers, the sun was starting to set and it would be dark in an hour's time. Steven, her husband was carrying 
the baby, who was two years old at the time, Carmencita, in the baby carrier on his back, and Carmen was holding Enoch, then four-year-old's hand. I realized I'm going to read this in first person. I'm going to switch to first person now. <laughs> we were just trying to get down before the sunset and should have been able to if we kept moving. On our way down, there were two people leaning on a rock, a man and a woman. The woman had her ankle up with a belt wrapped around it tightly and asked us if we could help her. She and her friend were exchange students from China studying at a college in Texas, and she had twisted her ankle really badly and couldn't put any weight on it. Her name was Ning. The man had tried to call 911 as they had been stuck in the same spot for a while, and he didn't know what to do, and the sun was going down, and they didn't want bears to find them or something. The trails did not have as many people on them as most people don't night hike. The 911 operator kept asking him if the ankle was broken or sprained, and he didn't know how to answer as he just knew she couldn't stand on it and he wasn't able to carry her. There may have been a slight language barrier as well, and the 911 operator told him basically she wasn't going to send anyone because he couldn't definitively say it was broken. He kept requesting, I know, so crazy. She can't walk on it and he can't carry it. They're going to die in the mountains. Like, I'm sorry, can we... Should we? Okay, everyone, let's go find this person and get them fired. It's a little bit worse. He kept requesting she just called the ranger station in Yosemite Valley for help because he barely had phone service, let alone internet to look up their number. She didn't and left him hanging. Steven is an EMT, and he also tried to talk to the 911 operator to make sure the operator wasn't dismissing him because of the heavy accent or something, and she was still unhelpful and unwilling to call the ranger ranger station. So maybe not prejudice, maybe horrible to everyone. Just an awful person. Steven had to carry Carmen Sita because I couldn't carry her anymore as I'm just not as strong as him. And we thought maybe he would go ahead with the kids to beat the sunset and get a ranger to come get help while I help this lady limp down the rest of the trail. Steven is somewhat of a pack mule. He can carry both kids at the same time without issue. I really didn't want the kids on the trail after dark as carrying a baby without being able to see is a bad idea. Steven didn't want to leave us though, unless he really had to. Needless to say, helping her limp down the trail with her friend was not working out well. Then, out of nowhere, comes this group of hippies with a shirtless Tarzan-looking dude leading the pack. Long brown hair, abs for days, and everything. The whole hippie group looks to be in their 20s, and we asked them if they could possibly help get this lady down the mountain. Tarzan said, sure, hop on my back. It worked Thank out God. that Ning- it Thank God out- it's Tarzan. <laughs> it worked out that Ning was pretty short and fit on his back well. The only issue oh. was that his wrists were hurting holding her up. She fit on his back okay, but was kind of sliding down as he was hiking. So I took my sweater off and used it like a baby wrap and just kind of tied her to his back by putting it under her bottom and around his shoulders. Thinking infant baby wrap. I guess having clingy babies constantly strapped to me for years paid off. I now have the talent to tie people together. (laughs) The rest of the hippie group was also really nice. I forgot where they were from, some European country, and they were just visiting America on vacation. We got down the mountain. As soon as we were to the end part that is super easy to hike, Stephen went ahead and got a ranger to meet us at the bottom of the trail where normal cars were not allowed. The ranger then took Ning to her car so her friend could drive her to the hospital. There's little to no parking next to the trail. We offered Tarzan a beer, but he was sober. We talked for a little bit, but it was almost completely dark. So we said our goodbyes and walked the kids to the car. Never seen any of them again. Ning did text me once afterwards to tell me they made it to the doctors and she was okay. Oh, I love that story. That's so good. I just love that sober hiking Tarzan is out there doing good in the world. (laughs) Oh, sober Tarzan. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Amazing. All right. That's incredible. <laughs> um, if you haven't followed our social media yet, please do. It's at the underscore underscore anxiety pod. Um, 
we're going to have some fun things coming up. So you don't want to miss it. And the world can be a scary place. Don't forget to take a deep breath. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore anxiety pod. We'll talk to you next week.